Well, welcome to Ground Truths, and this podcast is a special one for me because I get to meet uh, Professor Dr. Uh, Ziad Al-Ali for the first time, even though we've been communicating for years. So welcome, Ziad. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really a delight and pleasure and an honor to be with you here today. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And most importantly, thank you for all the stuff that you do and you've been doing over the past several years, communicating science to the whole world, especially during the pandemic. And enormously grateful for all your effort. Well, you're too kind. And we're going to get into your work, uh, which is uh, more than formidable. But before I do that, because you have been a leading light in the pandemic and understanding, especially through the large uh, veterans affairs population, the largest healthcare system in the United States, uh, the toll of COVID. But before we touch on that, a bit on your background. First, you're you're a young guy. You haven't even hit uh, 50 yet. My goodness, right? And you uh, grew up in Lebanon, uh, mm-hmm. as I understand it. Um, and uh, you were already coding when you were age 14, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty wild. And then um, you perhaps the death of your father at a young age of multiple myeloma uh, had a significant impact on your choice to go into medicine. Is that is that right? That, that's how, how, how it. Yeah, that's how it is. So that, that uh, you know, I, I grew up in Lebanon and I, you know, when I was growing up, you know, the, the computer sort of revolution at that time sort of was, was happening. And, and uh, you know, th- all of a sudden in my surroundings, there's like these people who are, you know, have these Commodore 64. So I, I decided that I they wanted to one. So I asked my parents to get me one. They got me one. I, I, I learned coding at that age. And my passion was I wanted to do, I, I thought I wanted to do then why I wanted to do computer science. And, and then my dad fell ill with multiple myeloma and it was an aggressive form. And, and uh, you know, he required initially a lot of chemotherapy and then again, and then subsequently hospitalizations. I do remember vividly visiting him in the hospital and then connected with the profession of medicine. Mm-hmm. I was not on that track. I, I didn't really, that's not, you know, all my youth, I wanted to be a coder. I wanted to be a computer scientist. I wanted to, to you know, do, do the, you know, basically work with computers all my life. That's what I, sort of my passion was. And then, and then sort of redirected all that um, energy to, to medicine. Well, you sure point. did it well. And you graduated from one of the top, um, you know, medical schools, universities in the world, at American University of Beirut, and came to St. Louis, where you basically have, for now uh, 24 years or so, um, went on to train in medicine and nephrology <clears throat> and became a leading light. So before the pandemic, you didn't know it as yet, I guess, but you were training to be a pandemic researcher because you had already made the link uh, back in 2016, uh, as far as I know, between these protein pump inhibitors and kidney disease, later cardiovascular disease and upper GI cancers. Can you tell us, uh, was that your first big uh, finding in the in your work in epidemiology? Yeah, we, we started doing epidemiology, I mean, I started doing epidemiology or clinical epi right after fellowship. It sort of trained with mentors and subsequently developed my own groups and my own funding. And, uh, you know, uh, Initially, our initial work was in pharmacoepidemiology. We were very, very interested in figuring out, like, how do we leverage this big data to try to understand the long-term, you know, side effects of medication, which was really not available in clinical trials. Most clinical trials for for these things, you know, track them for maybe thirty days or, or, or you know, at most for for a few months, you know, and and, and really long-term risk risk uh, risk profile of these medications have not been characterized previously. Mm-hmm. 
so we, we did that using big data and then and then you know uh, and then subsequently sort of discovered the world of you know environmental epidemiology we, we also did quite a bit of bit of work in environmental epi linking you know air pollution to non-communicable disease yeah. and in retrospect reflecting on that now i sort of feel that was uh it was like sort of training ground. That was sort of a right, getting training right. wheels, figuring out how to really optimize our our thinking, asking the right question, uh, the right question that matters to people, addressing it rigorously using data, and also communicating it to a wider public. And and those were sort of a, that that was my training, so to speak, before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you really made some major. I I just want to point out that even though I didn't know of your work before the pandemic. Uh, it was already momentous, the link between air pollution and diabetes, the link of PPIs and these various uh, untoward um, uh, organ events, uh, uh, serious events. So now we go into the pandemic. And uh, what you had access to with the, the VA uh, massive resource, uh, you, you seize the opportunity with your colleagues. Um, this is, had you already had some of this prior work already been through that data resource? Yes, yes. Our work on PPI, on adverse events of medications, including proton pump inhibitors, was all using, you know, the A data. And then our work using uh, inf- in environmental epidemiology, linking air pollution to, to chronic disease, was also using the A data, but we linked it with NASA data, with sort of satellite data from NASA that sort of uh, capture PM2.5. You know, but, uh, NASA has these wonderful satellites that if, if a chemical is on Earth, you know, and, and has a chemical signature, they can actually see it from, from space and measure its concentration. So that data is actually all available free of charge. So what we did is I went to these, you know, massive databases at, at NASA and linked them to uh, to uh, to our VA data, and then we're able to analyze the relationship between exposure to high levels of air pollution in the United States and then and then subsequent disease and in veterans in, in our database. Yeah, that was ingenious to bring in the NASA satellite data. Uh, big thinker, that's what you are. So now you are confronted with the COVID exposure among what millions of veterans. Uh, Of course, you have controls uh, and you have cases and you're now seeing data that says every system is being hit here. And you write, uh, you and your colleagues wrote papers on virtually every system, no less the entire long COVID. What were the surprises that you encountered when you were looking at these data? I remember like the initial shock in our first paper when we did our first paper and there was a there was a sort of a, a systematic approach looking at all organ systems and and we weren't expecting that because at that time at that time we were thinking you know SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus we know respiratory virus may have some you know post acute sequela and and maybe maybe cardiovascular systems and but we weren't really expecting to see hits in nearly every organ system I remember when we first one got the the results from from uh, you know from what then became our nature paper our first uh, you know paper in, in in nature around around this I I doubted this I, I I couldn't really believe that this is really true I, I looked at the association with diabetes and I told Yan my colleague here who is really absolutely absolutely wonderful I told him like there must be a mistake here you made an error there is an error in the model for sure this is not believable there can't be like SARS-CoV-2 and diabetes this is impossible it's not I, I you know there was there wasn't really you know a, a, an arrow in my brain that's sort of linking you know uh, SARS-CoV-2 to diabetes I, I doubted it and and, I, yes. and then 
we went back to the model, went back to the data, rebuilt the cohort, redid the whole experiment again with controls. The same thing happened again. I was like, I still was not believing it. And it was like, yeah, there's something wrong here. This is, it's, it's weird. It's strange. This is not how, how these things work. Again, you know, and from medical school, from all my education, we're not trained to sort of think that, you know, viruses, especially respiratory viruses, have these, you know, myriad effects in, in all these organ systems, right? So, so, uh, I, I, I doubted it for the longest time, but, but, the, but the results came back exactly consistent every single time. The controls work, our positive control work, our negative controls work. So there's really nothing, you know, like, no, <laughs> eventually sure. we, we, that, the data is the data, then we, 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 we then submitted it for, for, for a review. Yeah, well, I want to emphasize this because, you know, many have tried to dismiss the data because it's average age of uh, 60 plus and it's men and it's European ancestry and for the most part. But everything you found, I mean, everything you found has been backed up by many other replications. So, for example, the diabetes, particularly the type 2 diabetes, there's now 12 independent replications and a very similar magnitude of the effect, you know, it's some even more than 40% increase. So we didn't need to have more in the diabetes epidemic than we already have in the world, but it looks like COVID has contributed to that. And what do you say to the critics that say, oh, well, these are old, you know, white men you're studying um, and, uh, does it really apply long COVID and all this multi-system organ hits to other populations, given that, for example, the prototypic long COVID person affected might be a woman between age 30 and 39? What, what are your, what's your sense about that? So the way I think about it is that is that you know our, our data are massive, and and while the average age is sixty, you know the data because these are millions of literally millions of people. Some cohorts are six million. Some some of the studies that we've done six million people. So the average age could be sixty, but there are literally hundreds of thousands in their twenties and thirties and forties, and they're all represented in the data. And the data is obviously you know, also controlled for age and race and sex. And, and I tell people sort of this, this thing that, you know, they say, oh, well, your data is only 10% women. And then this is why, like, you know, but 10% out of, out of 6 million people is 600,000 women. I told, I told a friend the other day that, you know, 600,000 women could fill six Taylor, Taylor Swift stadiums, right? So, so it, it isn't really small, um, you know, and even if we were to only analyze people in their 20s and 30s, well, we could do that. We could do that. I mean, we could, we could easily do, you know, 300 or 400,000 people study of people from age 20 to 40. You know, in, in our experience, we, we get more or less the same results because, again, the results are adjusted for age. Um, and then the, the second component of my thinking about this, and as, as you point out, the, the gold standard in science is reproducibility. You know, you know, you know, does this really finding reproduce in other settings? Other, other people are also seeing it, are able to validate it and reproduce the finding? Or is this really some peculiar thing about the VA that's happening only in the VA world or the VA universe that doesn't really happen outside? And then so far, you know, not only the findings in the pandemic, all the findings prior, the PPIUs and chronic kidney disease, PPIUs and, and other side effects, the, all the pollution work has been reproduced to the T by, by Michelle Bell, by Francesca Dominici at Harvard. You know, it, it's to the T, all these you know, pollution studies have been reproduced in, in, you know, from you know, using Medicare data, using the data that's outside the VA, other data sets. And also your, some European friends and European collaborators reproduce, reproduce the same thing. So again, the gold standard in science is reproducibility, but, but 
healthy skepticism is also he- skepticism is also healthy. You know, because we, we always want to challenge the, the finding. Is this really true? You know, can we bank on it? And really, the most important thing is science reproducibility, really, is, 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 is to be able to take this finding or to take the question somewhere else and then be able to reproduce the evidence that, that is seen in, in any data set. Right. Well, so you um, have really laid out the, the foundation for our understanding of long covid uh, I agree with your point that there's plenty of people who are more in that prototypic age and, and gender. But by doing so, uh, we have this kind of two paths. One is the symptoms of long COVID, where, as you know, there's a, a reported even a couple hundred and some, of course, in clusters. And then there's these organ hits across neurologic, cardiovascular, kidney, and on and on. Um and you recently, uh, of course, provided the two-year data uh, on that, which, of course, is important because, as you know uh, from your data, these are mostly, if not almost exclusively, unvaccinated early in the pandemic. Um, and could you comment about what your main findings were at two years and what you think would be the difference if this was a widely vaccinated uh, uh, population? Sure. And, and so in the two-year studies, what we've really seen is that um, we, we, first of all, to introduce the readers uh, or the, the, the listeners, there were two groups. We, we split them into two cohorts, non-hospitalized and hospitalized people with COVID-19 compared to controls. Now, in the non-hospitalized group, we in both groups, we assessed about 80 sequela of, of, of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. We've seen is about you know 30%, the risk for 30% of the sequela remain elevated at two years in the non-hospitalized group. That those are the people who really had mild disease that did not necessitate hospitalization. Yet even at two years, they were at they were they remained at high risk of about 30% of the of the sequela that we've that we evaluated in, in, in that study. The, the um, risk profile for the people who were hospitalized was much more complicated or much more um, uh, uh, or less optimistic in the sense that they were about 65% of the sequela uh, also registered at a higher risk in the COVID group versus the control group. So now it's very, very important for people to really know that this is really because we needed to do a two-year study. You know, we couldn't really enroll somebody in the study who had COVID six months ago. They don't have a two-year follow-up, right? So this is a two-year study. By necessity, we had to enroll people from the very first year of the pandemic, which meant that most of the people there, nearly or nearly all actually, were the you know the pre-Delta era, you know the, the ancestral strain or pre-Delta era, and were non-vaccinated. So um, the, to the core of the question, how does this risk profile change with? With uh, with time and and you know my hunch is that sort of the you know a lot of things have changed. Obviously now we have vaccination, we have population level immunity. Uh, the virus itself has changed. Uh, we have we have antivirals, you know Paxlovid and 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 others, but mainly Paxlovid. And all of those are known to ameliorate the risk of not only but acute disease, but also chronic disease or or the risk of long COVID to, to various degrees. But there's certainly uh, we see in our work and other people's work there is uh, you know evidence of, of risk reduction in 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 these uh, in, in the risk of long term uh, sequela or or, or long term consequences of SARS CoV two infection. So so that leads me to believe that uh, the the 
the risk now or, or the, the you know, it w- would be lower, but that's really a hypothesis. You know, I, I don't have data to back this up. If you ask me for data today for three years, I don't have it yet. Uh, we, we're, we're thinking about it a lot. We're, we're, we're trying to work on it. Uh, it's, I, I, I don't have it yet, but, uh, but it, the, the hunch is that this is really, uh, uh, it, it's it's lower now than the way it was. Right, right. No, that'll be really interesting to see, and I certainly agree with you. As other studies, obviously none as large as the, what your data resource is with the Veterans Affairs have suggested that the vaccines and boosters are providing some protection. Paxlovid, metformin, and a randomized trial, as you well know. Now, one of the uh, papers of the many in top-tier journals that you published was about reinfections. And um, this led to some confusion out there, which I hope that you'll be able to straighten out. Uh, I saw it as a dose response, whereby if you have multiple reinfections, the chance of you developing multiple uh, of a long COVID syndrome uh, would be increased to some degree. Can you clarify that uh, interpretation? This is exactly right. So, so a lot of people sort of, uh, you know, interpreted it as we're we're trying to evaluate the risk of second infection versus the first, or how how you know whether the second infection is more mild or more severe than the first. That's not really the study question. So, what we did, we 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 sort of said that and now we know a lot of people had a first infection, right? So that's a that's already happened to these people. They cannot go back and and erase it or do anything about it. They already had a first infection. What's the most important question for somebody who had an, a prior infection going forward is, does it matter to me to, or, or that, is it helpful to me to protect myself from the second infection, right? So we designed the study and, 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 and arguably designed a little bit sort of a, 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 what was, was confusing to some people um, in, in, in the media. We designed the study to evaluate the risk of reinfection versus a counterfactual of no reinfection. So, so basically, you know, if you had two people who have, you know, equal characteristics at baseline, everything equal, they had a first infection, one protected himself or herself from getting a second infection, and the other one did not, and then got a second infection, what are the outcomes in the person who did not get a second infection versus the person who got a second infection, right? And, and, and the results are very, very clear that the, a second infection or reinfection is consequential. It adds or it contributes additional risks both in the acute phase, it can put uh, even reinfection can put people in the hospital, can also result in some death. That's very, very clear in our data and has been, you know, is, is very clear in other data as well, and can also contribute to risk of long COVID. So, so I think that the, the, the best interpretation for this is that for people to think that two infections are worse than one and three are worse than two. Right, so so two infections are worse than one, and three are are are, are worse than two. Um, but we we've learned a lot from this this paper because I I, I definitely agree, and I've seen a lot sort of a, a not the right interpretation for it. We we discovered that America does not like counterfactual thinking. You know, uh, that, that it's really hard to to uh, to explain counterfactual thinking, but or or but that's really sort of a, but that's really what we thought about as the most important question to answer. It it isn't really. Uh, whether a second infection is really milder or more severe than a first is is more like a if you were to do something about it does it does it does it really help you to prevent yourself from getting a second infection or a third infection right and for us to to design you know the study to answer this specific question you know we we, we compared reinfection to no reinfection and we thought we wrote it very clearly still some headlines where oh these are comparing a first infect a second infection to a first infection which that was not our our 
our intent. We didn't really design the set this way. As a matter of fact, we had a, a little bit of a, a, a hunch that it might be misinterpreted this way. At the very, very last minute in the copy editing stage, I inserted a sentence in the discussion that our, our results and our work should not be interpreted as a comparison of a second infection versus first. This is, uh, I hope the editor is not listening. I, I inserted this at the, at, the, at, the last, at the last minute in the copy editing stage in the, in the limitations section to help people understand that this is not a, a, an evaluation or a comparative evaluation of the risks of the second infection versus the first, but more a second infection versus no second infection. Right, right. No, I'm so glad you clarified that because I think it's an important uh, result. And it has uh, indeed, like everything else you've done, uh, been replicated. So now um, I want to ask you, have you, are you in NOVID? Have you ever had COVID? Oh, I, I did uh, have, uh, I, I uh, uh, tried to reduce my risk and I did everything I'm supposed to do, except that in this June, uh, about two months ago, I, I traveled and, and uh, I, I got it while traveling, I think, uh. I guess. I was doing all the precautions that I could and, uh, and uh, I, I got it. I ended up having, uh, although I'm, I'm young and I, and I don't mind sharing, I, I got Paxlovid because I sort of I, I got Paxlovid and and uh, I got over it. Uh, but uh, that that was my first, and it was only two months ago. And I did did my best throughout this pandemic to prevent it. But then, you know, uh, travel is tricky because it, you're exposed to a lot of people on the plane, and you don't, you know, it, it's tricky. At the airport, is is very busy, crowded, and uh, it's it's very tricky. So, no, uh, especially because, you know, people are not in taking precautions anymore. And so you go to the, these crowded places with poor ventilation and uh, very few people wear masks. And uh, we still have all these people who are, you know, anti-mask, anti-science, anti-vax, and that isn't helping either. So the next thing I was going to ask you about was um, you've done this remarkable work, a series of papers that uh, have led the pandemic. And in fact, you really have the only pulse on the United States data because outside of what you have in terms of all these electronic health records and longitudinal follow-up, we don't have any health system that has this capability. So we have relied on you and your team to give us uh, these these really critical readouts. Um, what are you going to do next? We're very committed to understanding long COVID, so we feel there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, knowledge gaps that still still need to be unpacked and 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 understood. And and we're we really I feel committed to it. So we we came to long COVID because because we sort of uh, you know felt the voice of the patient advocacy groups at the very early phase of the pandemic, saying you know at that time they were not so organized, but they were you know saying an up at pieces that that uh, you know we're we're having a problem here and somebody needs to look at it and somebody needs to evaluate it. We immersed ourselves in, in, in long COVID, sort of really inspired by the patient advocacy groups initially, and and we feel we feel connected to us. We, we, so that's really we're we're definitely committed to 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 deepen our understanding of long COVID. But ha- having said that, I sort of see, feel that uh, I do hope that our work uh, you know inspire others that that there is a lot of value in data. There are limitations, you know, the, you know, existing data or, or big data does not is not without limitations. There are limitations in the data, but it can also you know, unlock a lot of insights, especially, you know, in crises like the one we just, we, we just experienced, that we, you know, the, the, the pandemic. Well, yeah, and, and this- I, I think you have some uh, extraordinary opportunities. So, for example, when you found what previously was not appreciated through the data resource uh, of the Veterans Affairs, 
the relationship between a medication, uh, protein pump inhibitors and, and kidney and cardiovascular diseases. I wonder, for example, because so many people take metformin, uh, would metformin show protection from long COVID within the Veterans mm-hmm. Affairs database? As, as an example, of course, maybe there are even some medications that are commonly used that offer a protective effect. I mean, you might be able to look at something like that because you, what you, the data you have to work with, in so many ways, is is massive and unprecedented. Well, yeah, I mean, so this, the scale of VA data is really amazing. So it, it's really the, the largest integrated healthcare system in the U.S. And, and it's it's really fully integrated. There's, you know, lab data, medication data, sociodemographics, uh, everything, you know, benefits data, literally everything is, a, is, in, is in one place. And, and there is opportunity to, to try to evaluate therapeutics, you know, the effect of metformin, other antihypoglycemics, maybe, you know, GLP-1s. And so there's a lot of these hypotheses that, that they, you know, because, because the virus might reside in fat cells, you know, there is this, this hypothesis that was just recently reviewed in a beautiful review uh, in, in Nature Immunology on, on like the viral persistence hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So, so as, as, a, as a potential mechanistic pathway for, for long COVID, right? Um, so so there, are, there are a lot of hypotheses around metformin and GLP-1. And, 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 and I think the, the VA environment or data environment is, is certainly um, uh, good to test those, at least to, to uh, help inform you know, trials in this space. Now, there is a, already a trial on metformin, so, so that, yes. that's already done by David. Well, and it's, uh, yeah, but, but, but looking at it in, in, from another angle and, and the VA data would also, uh, I think, would add, would add insight and, and would, 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 uh, would further contribute to the national conversation. Right. I mean, I think um, the Canadians at McMaster are starting a very large trial metformin with 5,000 participants. But I wonder, you know, if there were these drugs that are linked to mTOR and mitochondrial function enhancement, uh, which, as you said, not only was there an excellent review on the persistence of the virus in reservoirs, but also one that, that you know of well, bringing in the, the potential of mitochondrial dysfunction as a, as a unifying theme. Now, um, as we go forward, um, you know, obviously the, um, the COVID problem is not going away. We, we have this circulating virus in one form or another, one version, one strain or another over the years ahead. And we only know of one way to avoid long COVID for sure, which is not getting COVID in the first place. And at least we have some things that would help if you have COVID, like what what you've already reviewed with Paxlovid. But the question is, there's no treatment out there. And you have been, you know, of course, helping as an advisor to the White House and WHO and the patient-led collaborative. And uh, the frustration out there is high because the recover. Um, at NIH had over $1 billion and they have done really almost nothing in clinical trials. Imagine if you had $1 billion to work with. Um, Can you comment about the fact that here we are, we're in September of 2023 and we don't even have one good clinical trial of a potential therapeutic? So this is enormously frustrating to me I, as well. I should be preventive therapy, not therapy. You know what I mean, right? 
Yes, yes, yes. So no, we're definitely on the same page. So, so this is enormously frustrating to me that 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 uh, and, and and you know, three years into the pandemic, we still have. And I and I do remember uh, when when I see the white box that you, that you put on on your tweet, and and I think it was recently illustrated in Fortune magazine. Um, you know, that there's like you know, three years into it, this is a full list of therapeutics for long COVID, and it's literally zero, nothing, nothing there. So, so it's it, it's really it's it's very 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 disappointing, and and uh, and I and I do think that. Uh, uh, we want recover to succeed. That's really very, very important. We want recover to succeed. The patients want to, the patient community want also recover to succeed. And I, and I think this is really hopefully an invitation. You know, all this. Uh, you know, uh, what I think is a constructive criticism of recovery. Hopefully, the, the recover folks will take it to heart and will will sort of uh, you know uh, rethink the approach and rethink the allocation of funds. The, in, in particular, what really bothers me the most, and I've told them about this. I mean, as you as you know, that I, I, I you know talk talk to to, to uh, multiple people in HHS and White House and all that. I, I what what really bothers me the most is that that a lot of the money had been actually allocated to the observational arm to recover. And my yeah. argument to them is that actually we can produce the same. We actually not can we have produced all that evidence for peanuts two years ago right, you know like we right. need a study in JAMA to tell us that well long COVID is characterized by fatigue and brain fog I know that already I already did that like two years ago you know an observational study right well we need interventional studies what right, we need right. Models, right so you know the, the, most of the money should really be allocated to interventions not really observational arm and it's not too late to correct course. It's absolutely not too late to correct course. Well, uh, I, I, you're kind, but I'm afraid they've run out of money. And so I don't know they're going to get any more to do the trials, which are, as you know, very expensive to run. So I, 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 it's not too late to do the trials, but unfortunately, it's very hard to get the funds to support them, I think. There, there may be mechanisms for them to, to reallocate things, but also very importantly that that we we cannot like even if they reallocate this one billion dollar to, to long COVID, I, I think we need a we need a longer longer term program and long COVID should have a sport that it should be a lot. We argued with that that. Uh, Long COVID should have its portfolio at NIH, maybe not an institute, but but a, but a, you know, a, and, and have a, a line item funding. So every year there will be funds for long COVID. Now we're told past FY twenty five, you know, fiscal year twenty five, there won't be additional funds for long COVID, and that's really that's really not how 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 we should treat a, a, you know a, really the the long term consequences of SARS CoV two. And why is that the case? Why would ask why that's really will not only pay dividends to help us understand what long COVID is and how to best treat it. It also can shed light into the other basket of infection-associated chronic illnesses that I argue that we have ignored for 100 years. You know, again, like, you know, COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is unique and it's not. You know, it's unique because now we're in a pandemic and the scale of it is really big and all of that. But if you really think about it, there's actually a lot of viruses that have produced a lot of long-term effects that we've ignored their, their, their long-term consequences for a long time from the research perspective and also from clinical care. And that needs to be researched. So research on long COVID or understanding long COVID will help us with long COVID, help us understand better understand the infection-associated chronic illnesses, and three, also help us with pandemic preparedness. You know, there, there is, you know, we, we, you know, there is a almost like a universal agreement that with with climate change, with human encroaching on on animal habitat, with human traveling so much more in the twenty first twenty first century than in the twentieth century, that the frequency of pandemics in the twenty first century is likely to be higher than the frequency of pandemic in the twentieth century. So we're going to experience more pandemics in this century, and we have to be prepared for them. 
this pandemic is is not the first and will and unfortunately unfortunately it's not going to be the last right. there's going to be another one in five years and 10 years and 20 years we don't know we cannot really predict these things but it's almost certainly we're going to be there's going to be one you know or more than one you know downstream and we have to be prepared for it so so i i think we should not be short-sighted I, I also argue that we already paid the price the hefty price in this pandemic more than 1.1 million deaths right we already paid the hefty price we already paid a very very dear price in this pandemic let's learn from it let's yeah. learn as much as possible from this pandemic let's learn to be able to help us for the next one now having said i i want to underscore a point you made which is you know it's not just this virus of sars cov2 um the uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis cfs and many other viruses uh, have led to a post-viral uh, syndrome, which is very debilitating. Um, so yes, uh, we can anticipate that not only do we have a burden that goes beyond, well beyond uh, COVID, but we may see this sort of thing uh, of lasting um, debilitating uh, impact of future pathogens. But to that mind, I wanna ask you, because when I studied um, on the influenza, 1918 and the polio epidemics, what I saw was that we saw many years later, new things that had not been seen at two years or three years. So as you know, after influenza, Parkinson's showed up, you know, 15 years later, and after polio, 30 years later, 40 years later, we saw the post-polio syndrome. So I hope with the, within the veterans uh, affairs, you will continue to look for things that we haven't even seen yet which are kind of what I would say are the known unknowns that there could be further surprises to this uh, problem. I, I don't know if you have a comment about that. No, we were cognizant of the of the, the prior observations, the historical observations that that uh, you know it took several, it took more than a decade for Parkinson's to show up after after um, uh, uh, the flu, and 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 there are there potentially could be latent effects of, of viruses, things that we're not seeing now. We, we, we still don't know because obviously the whole pandemic is in its fourth year, so we don't have 10 year follow up, you know, but, but we, we're sort of building our systems here to look at five years and look at 10 years with an eye that, that if there are latent effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection, we want to be able to see it and characterize it and understand it and hopefully figure out how to best prevent it and, 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 and then treat it. So, so we're, we're very, very yeah. uh, cognizant of the, of, of the fact that viruses, some viruses can have very latent manifestations. For example, EBV and multiple sclerosis, it doesn't show up immediately. It shows up like way down the road, right? Epstein-Barr virus and, and, and multiple sclerosis, right? So, so multiple, there are a lot of viruses, not one. Again, SARS-CoV-2 is not unique. You know, <laughs> a lot of viruses produce long-term um, uh, conditions and, and they have different timing when they show up. And, and, and uh, so we're, we're very, very interested in this and, and certainly uh, are building our data systems here to look at five years and 10 years. Yeah, that's perfect. I knew you would. I just wanted to make sure I touched on that with you because you don't miss a beat. Now, uh, the problem I see still today, uh, Ziad, is that um, there's lack of regard, respect, uh, acknowledgement for long COVID, despite your phenomenal work, despite that there's 60 million people around the world and then some, and still more as infections uh, again are on the uprise, there's people out there saying that these are malingerers, that there's no such thing. Uh, I can't even post things about long COVID on social media like Twitter X because I get all this pushback that it's made up and it's a hoax. And this is just unnerving because we both know people who have had 
they were athletic and now they're either wheelchair or bound to bed. I mean, this is, can be so, people are suffering. What can you say about the fact that there are all these people who are trying to dismiss long COVID uh, after all the work that you have done along with so many other researchers around the world to nail this down as a very big issue? So, so I definitely think it's a, it's a big issue. It, it's really unfortunate that in the U.S. and, and actually some other parts of the world that this, this the whole pandemic has been politicized. And, and it's really it's really uh, you know, sad to see. I, mean, I, I get some of them, I mean, not as much as you, but I get some of the you know, pushback on Twitter. And, and, and even sometimes when we publish a paper, sometimes people find my email. I don't know how they find my email. They find my email. I get the, what I call them nasty grams, really sort of a very, very unpleasant emails very unpleasant emails and and uh i just delete and i don't respond so the the it, it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to understand i mean it's really hard to understand but there's a lot of misinformation a lot of disinformation a lot of politicization of the pandemic a lot of politicization of, the, of vaccines you know and, and 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 their side effect and and it's sort of a almost polluting the national conversation and it's it's a uh, and it's toxic because these things are, this is not free speech. This is actually speech that harms other people. Like that there are people that feel, you know, disenfranchised, that feel sort of, a, you know, that feel that they're not, that their illness is not recognized or, or you know, some people refer to it as gaslighting. Yeah. That, that the condition is being yeah. gaslit but by, by this toxic discourse. And, and that's, that's really unfortunate. But uh, I wish I have a sort of a very clear, you know, solution or very clear sort of understanding of how to address this. It, it's a... It, it's something that baffles me, and and uh, and I because some of the stuff that I experience, I sort of declassify as almost toxic. It's really no, very- yeah. you're you're again, you're being um, kind because it's or you're. I mean, you're you're not. I think it, it's so dreadfully toxic. It's disgusting, despicable. Now, um, well, I'm disconcerted because, like, for example, you know, the last time we had a state of the union address by the president, he said. You know, the pandemic's looking good. I've never heard our president say uh, about long COVID uh, and our other leaders in our country to acknowledge how vital this is. It's great that we had the NIH to to allocate, you know, significant funds, but uh, maybe that a lot of that, unfortunately, has been uh, wasted. But I, I think we can do much better in getting the point across that this is a really big deal that so many people... Have, their lives have been changed. We don't have a remedy in sight. Only a very limited number of people, as you've published, really re- fully recover, uh, particularly if they've had a, a severe case, right? So I hope that in the future, we will have a better uh, consensus among the spokespeople, leadership, uh, that, that, that acknowledges the, the breadth and depth and seriousness of this problem. So the last thing I want to ask you about is... You know, you have had a record of prolific work in this pandemic. Uh, and I want to know do you, what your daily routine is like. Do you sleep? Do, do you, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> so uh, I, I, we, we feel very committed to this. So, so we, we're really working constantly, almost all the time. And, and you know, definitely I do sleep and I, and I do go to the gym and, and I try to, you know, maintain some, some healthy balance. But I also work on Saturdays to try to write papers and, and move things forward. We're a small team, but we feel, we feel very 
were very driven to 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 keep moving the ball forward on long COVID. And, and really, honestly, you know, uh, thanks to the patient community that has supported us from day one, actually inspired us and supported us from day one. So feel very connected to this cause and and feel want to to to, to move it forward. And and uh, it, it's it's a lot, but again, kudos to my team. You know, they're they're amazing. You know, and it's a small team, but they're really really absolutely absolutely amazing people. Well, and they yeah, do a lot. Cool. Kudos to you, uh, too, because you've been leading this team and you've illuminated COVID, uh, you know, from the U.S. standpoint, no group, no less for the world. Um, and these studies have been one after another, just really extraordinary um, seminal paper. So in closing, Ziad, I want to thank you for your what I consider heroic efforts. You and your team um, have you. had um, you, you have lit up this whole uh, space of COVID for all of us. And it's superimposed on great work that people didn't know about that you were doing. The Washington University St. Louis, one of the leading academic medical centers in the, in the country and the world, as well as the Veterans Administration should be so proud of you and your colleagues for this work. This is tireless work, I know. It's, it, every time you submit a paper, and every time you go through all the, the peer review and the revisions and the resubmissions and, and then, you know, you know, you've you've done it all uh, through this through these years of the pandemic, and I know you'll continue as well. So, thank you for this indefatigable effort, which has really been um, you know extraordinary. And uh, I look forward to keeping up with you and all the future efforts. And I know you'll be on it for years to come. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And again, thanks also for, for all your effort in this pandemic, communicating science, to, the, to elevating science and communicating to the wider public and all, you, all your wonderful, amazing, gigantic, you know, prior contributions. So thank you for your contribution to, to, to America and the world and, and especially being the communicator in chief uh, throughout this pandemic. Oh, you're too kind. We'll talk again, I hope, soon. And uh, great to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.